Now, our Father, we are grateful to be back after uh, a break. We are grateful, Lord, that uh, the year breaks up into seasons and that you oversee each day of every season. There, there are seasons where we, we just seem to have so much on our plate and we are working so extremely hard to meet deadlines and to get stuff done. But we cannot go 24-7 without a break. You did not design us that way. We, we can't go at that pace 365 days a year. So, Lord, you uh, even in the Old Testament, you told them to take a day each week. And then three times a year, you had the men come away from their normal work and their normal activity and meet in Jerusalem. There, there are times, Lord, when we just need a break. There are times when we, need, um, when we need a rest. And hopefully, if not this summer, at some point in this year, we'll be able to get that. For some of us, the summer uh, held things in store that we had no idea about. And for some, the the summer has been uh, inevitably a difficult time and a hard time and a hard season. For others, it's been a a very profitable time and it's been a good quarter. Lord, you oversee our lives and all the details of our lives. As we come back and as we start our study for the fall, first of all, we thank you for the rain. We need rain and rain comes from you. And uh, we have all been in situations when the rain did not come. And I'm mindful that even a couple of years ago in the state of Georgia, the governor began to pray and ask you for rain because they were in such a desperate situation. And normally he wouldn't talk about you at all. But we'll talk about you tonight and acknowledge that you are the God who sends the rain upon the just and the unjust. Uh, we, We would also say, Lord, that we are grateful that you've given us the truth and you've given us your Bible. We, we are grateful, Lord, that, uh, that Jesus told us the truth and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It is only through Christ that we're saved. It is only through Christ that our lives are renewed and our hearts are changed. It's only in Christ that we find our purpose and our reason for being alive. And for every guy that is here, no matter what circumstance he comes out of, he, he is here tonight by a divine appointment because every day is a divine appointment. You oversee the days of our lives. Uh, you have a plan for each guy in this room. And you use the good and you use the bad. And, and through all of these experiences, Lord, you teach us, you humble us, you build muscle in our lives uh, to make us the men you want us to be. We have all failed. We have all disappointed ourselves And we have disappointed you. We have all sinned grievously. We are so thankful that Jesus is a great Savior. And that when we come to him in brokenness and we admit our sin from our gut, that there is forgiveness. And you not only forgive our sin, but you forget our sin. And you never hold hold it against us again because of what Jesus did on the cross. Father, tonight... There's something we all need, and what it is, is wisdom. We all need wisdom to live. We cannot live without your wisdom. So we ask that you'll instruct each guy. We pray that you'll give us teachable hearts. We're asking you to do that work in our lives that, uh, that no man can do.
do. Only your spirit can do. So we would ask these things in the name that's above every name, and that is the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, over the summer, you know, we finish in May, and then, for me, the summer's a good time. And this summer was a particularly good time because usually I'm riding over the summer. This summer, I wasn't riding. And I had some time off, and I had more time to study and more time to think, and someone asked, hey, where did you guys go for vacation? We didn't go anywhere. We stayed home. I go enough as it is. Um, I travel enough as it is. So when I've got a chance to stay home, um, I, we stayed home and uh, uh, really had a good summer. Um, I began probably in um, uh, July to think about what we were going to do, and I had pr- and I'd already much already pretty much decided in June that we were going to do Daniel here in the fall. And um, so that's what I'm thinking, and I'm working on it, and, you know, studying and reading in advance. Okay, Daniel, Daniel. But, you know, it was interesting over the summer. Because um, from time to time, from time to time, Mary would say to me, she would say, uh, not every day, once a week, she'd say, she said, Steve, are you okay? I go, yeah, I'm okay. She said, you don't seem okay. And I said, well, that's because I'm not. <laughs> and she said, well, what's wrong? I said, I don't know what's wrong, but I'm just kind of unsettled. I'm just a little unsettled. And then every once in a while, you know, I'd be out with one of my kids, you know, with Josh or something, and he goes, he'd say, Dad, you all right? And I go, yeah, I'm all right. He said, you don't seem all right. And I said, well, yeah, I, I'm, there's something some out of whack. I don't know what it is, but I'm just a little bit off. And I was a little bit off. And I, and I really didn't know why. Uh, Forty years ago, I read a book by C.H. Spurgeon, the great British preacher of the 1800s. Spurgeon had a college for pastors. And he, he gave some... Uh, the title of one of his books was called Lectures to My Students. I try to read that book often. Because here is a wise man of God talking to young men and uh, guys going to be in ministry. And the first chapter of that book is called The Minister's Self-Watch. It's brilliant. Let me read you just a little shot of it. Then I'll, then I'll, I'll pull this together and show you where I'm going here. The Minister's Self-Watch. And then the heading, the, the, the scripture verse is first. Timothy 4.16, take heed unto thyself and unto thy doctrine. Or I think the New American Standard says, pay close attention to your life and to your doctrine. Pay close attention to your life and to your teaching. Talking to pastors. And, and Spurgeon begins, every workman knows the necessity of keeping his tools in a good state of repair. For if the iron be blunt, this is kind of old King James, and you do not sharpen the edge, then he, but, then he must use more strength in order to utilize it. If the workman loses the edge of his ads, some of you guys know what that is, he knows that there will be a greater draught upon his energies, or his work will be badly done. Michelangelo, the elect of the fine arts, understood so well the importance of his tools that he always made his own brushes with his own hands, and in this he gives us an illustration of the God of grace, 
who with special care fashions for himself all true ministers. Uh, Then he says this to pastors, we are in a certain sense our own tools and therefore must keep ourselves in order. If I want to preach the gospel, I can only use my own voice, therefore I must train my vocal powers. I can only think with my own brains and feel with my own heart, and therefore I must educate my intellectual and emotional faculties. I can only weep and agonize for souls in my own renewed nature, therefore I must watchfully maintain the tenderness which was in Christ Jesus in my own life. It will be in vain for me to stock my library or organize societies or project schemes if I neglect the culture of myself. For books and agencies and systems are only remotely the instruments of my holy calling. My own spirit, soul, and body are my nearest machinery for sacred service. My spiritual faculties and my inner life are my battle axe and weapons of war. Let me say that again. My spiritual faculties, my inner life, are my battle axe and weapons of war. Robert Murray McChain, in writing to a ministerial friend who was traveling with a view to perfecting himself in the German language, used language identical with our own. And here's what McChain wrote. I know you will apply hard to German, but do not forget the culture of the inner man. I mean of the heart. How diligently the Calvary officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents that God blesses, so much as likeness to Jesus. A holy minister, McChain says, is an awful weapon in the hands of God. There is a minister's self-watch. There is a Christian's self-watch. If you're a husband, if you're a father, you are the pastor of your family. So we got to watch ourselves. we got to watch our hearts. We, we've we've, we've got to just, we, and he goes on in this chapter, and he talks about that in, that in London, it's not unusual back in his day, that uh, people would look up, and then they would take out their watches. What were they doing? Well, they were setting their watches. What were they looking at? They were looking at Big Ben. See, in London... Uh, people would set their watches according to Big Ben. Well, let me ask you something. What if Big Ben gets off? What happens in your family if the leader gets off in his devotion to Christ? What happens if the leader gets off in following Christ? What happens in a church if a pastor gets off? There's a horrific situation going on right now with the ministry that um, is, is near to, to many of us and, and one of the men who was working with young boys over the last 10 years has been molesting young boys. It's a devastating thing. It's a devastating thing. It is a disappointing thing. Uh, it's an attack from the enemy. But it starts with one man not watching himself and not yielding, yielding himself and not surrendering himself to Christ. Um, we... we we are men, and therefore we have strategic places. Joel Aldrich used to say, not all of God's people. No, I back up. That's not how he said it. Joel Aldrich used to say this. He said, all of God's people are equally precious, but not all of God's people are equally strategic. 
Men are strategic. Husbands are strategic. Husbands set the atmosphere in the home. Fathers set the atmosphere in the home. You follow me, Paul says, as I follow Christ. If you are, if you are half-hearted in your commitment to Christ, you're going to confuse your children, you're going to confuse your grandchildren, and you're going to screw them up. So over the summer, I'm just a little out of whack. And I'm trying to figure out what's, what's wrong. I mean, there wasn't any blatant sin or immorality or anything, you know. I'm just, I'm just a little off. You ever get a little off? Yeah, I'm a little off. And, and, and I'm going through the summer, and I'm thinking, okay, and I'm, you know, just, I'm just thinking about it. And, you know, we got the fall coming up. I'm going to teach Daniel. And, 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 you know, one morning I was really praying about this thing. And, you know, I said, you know, Lord, I'm just a little off. Um, honestly, I don't have a lot of uh, joy. I'll give you some symptoms. I'm not real joyful right now. I don't have a whole lot of peace, actually. I'm just a little off. Um, anyway, I, I was down at the Christian bookstore, and um, I'm looking around. I often go to bookstores and look around. And I'm looking around, and I see this book on the rack, and it's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. <laughs> Written by Jeremiah Burroughs in 1648. And as soon as I saw the title, I thought, you know what? I'm not content. I immediately knew what it was. I'm not content. I picked up this book. This guy in 1648 wrote 228 pages. Get your Bible with you. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. This guy wrote 220-some pages on one verse out of Philippians chapter 4. Actually, two verses. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12. Paul says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I have learned to be content. This guy writes 224 pages on that phrase. I have learned to be content. 224 pages. I wasn't content. And then I started having, I started having, and, and, and and you see, I knew it because you've got to watch ourselves. You've got to watch yourself. You've got to watch how your heart's doing. How am I doing? How's my heart? What's going on? Where, you know, where, where am I with the Lord? Am I following him? Am I obeying him? Am I, where, where am I? You've got to watch yourself. You've got to watch yourself. Because you see, I'm my biggest problem and you are your biggest problem. So we've got to watch ourselves. So, so I'm thinking, so now, you, so, so, so now, now I know what the problem is. Now I got a dilemma. You know what my dilemma is? I start reading this guy's book. And this sucker, this thing is a gold mine. It's just a gold mine. And about three or four days after I'm reading this book, and see, um, back in May, back, yeah, back in May, I'm talking to one of the guys that comes on Wednesday night, and he says, uh, he said, you spend much time in Philippians 4? And I said, well, I've taught through that. He said, that chapter really helps me. I said, it's a great chapter. I said, yeah, it's a great chapter. Anyway, so I'm reading this book, basically I'm Philippians chapter 4. About three, four days after that, I'm on the phone with Jeff. Jeff sends me an email. Jeff is the guy who, who works with President Fellowship. Jeff is the guy that sends me these 48,000-word uh, uh, emails. 
that are very deep and very profound, and sometimes, and, and, and I love hearing from Jeff, but sometimes, as I've said in here before, it takes me six months to reply because it takes me six months to think about what he's saying. Then other times, it's just, you know, stuff we correspond with. Well, he sent me something, and it prompted me after I, I thought, you know, i got to think about this, and I did think about it, and then the next day I called him. And I haven't called you before, I don't think. And I called him, and we start talking. And as we're, before we really start to get into it, we're talking about some other things. And he said, hey, he said, you ever get on this one website? And I said, I've never heard of it. He said, it's a pretty good website. This guy reviews books. And, and oftentimes, he'll do classic books, and people will read with him, and they'll interact, you know. And I said, oh, good. He said, yeah, right now, he's uh, doing this book by this Puritan pastor written about 300 years ago. Now, that morning, I had specifically prayed and asked God to show me what he wanted me to teach in the fall. Because I was going to do Daniel, but I'm reading this contentment thing, and I'm thinking I'm not the only guy who's struggling with contentment. So, Lord, what do you want me to do? That morning, I specifically asked God to make it clear to me. So I'm talking to Jeff, and he goes, you ever go on this website? No, I've never heard of it. You know, he says, well, it's good. This guy does classic books, and he's reviewing this book. He just started reviewing this book, written by this guy. I said, Jeremiah Burroughs? He said, how did you know? I said, I'm psychic. I didn't say that. I said, uh, the rare jewel of Christian contentment, right? He said, yeah. Now, see, I call that providence. I call that providence. A couple days later, my daughter, Rachel, said something to me about Philippians chapter 4. And I'm in a quandary. Because I keep looking at Philippians chapter 4, but then I see Daniel, and I'm trying to figure out, how the heck do I teach Philippians chapter 4, or do I teach And I'm in, I'm in a quandary. I'm in a big-time quandary. I still haven't figured it out, so we're going to go ahead and pray and dismiss. <laughs> I really appreciate your coming out tonight, and hopefully by next week. One of the things Jeremiah Burroughs says about, about contentment, Note verse 11, I have learned, I have learned, he says, I have learned. It's a process. I have learned to be content. Now, what does it mean to be content? The idea here is I have learned to be self-sufficient. So well, that doesn't sound right. No, I have learned to be self-sufficient. Look down at verse 13. He defines it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not self-sufficient in ourselves. Sufficient in Christ. I'm self-sufficient in Christ. That's why he says in verse 12, he says, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. Uh, last year at this time, we were talking about Joshua and Caleb and what God did in their lives to get them battle ready. And we looked at their background and their history, and the fact that they were born slaves in Egypt. And when you're a slave, uh, basically, I mean, you've got no rights. you got no rights whatsoever. And then everything was falling apart financially a year ago. You remember that, you know, big thing over the three-day, you know, so we got to bail everything, other thing's going to fall in the toilet. Remember that? Boy, that started us on a ride, didn't it? Quite a ride. Quite a ride. 
we had, we had a long run of prosperity. We had a long stretch of prosperity. We were doing pretty well. Paul says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. Paul says, look, it, I can live in the Ritz-Carlton in Laguna Beach, or I can live in a pup tent by the side of the road in a, in a ditch. I can do either one. doesn't matter to me. By the way, he's writing from prison. He often wrote from prison. Uh, what has happened to Paul here is that uh, because he's in prison, and Paul is an older man here, uh, Paul's in prison. Therefore, he has lost his liberty. He has lost his freedom. He has lost his financial assets. As I talk to guys around the country, I'm running into a lot of guys. See, a year ago, a lot of guys were worried and anxious about the economy and where everything was going. But now I'm sensing just conversations, dialogue with guys, and you are too. It, it's, it's, uh, it's accelerated. It's just not about the money anymore. We, we, we've, if you look at life seriously, and if you look at life carefully, see, there are questions in your mind uh, about, uh, about liberty. There are questions in your mind about freedom. We've had a long run in this country. The question is, how long are we going to run? Because you've read all the stuff about the rise and fall of great nations. You know about that stuff. And quite frankly, we're not on the rise. I think it's safe to say, don't you? I, I think that's safe to say. Wasn't it Toynbee that said there were five phases? There's initial growth. Secondly, there's rapid expansion and economic gain. Thirdly, there's conservation of gains made. Fourthly, there's moral deterioration. And fifthly, there is collapse. You know, the rise and fall of great nations. Now, you know, we could take a vote on where you think we are, but I imagine most of us would say we're somewhere around number four. Things aren't looking all that good. I don't think. And here's the danger. See, we start looking at this stuff, and we start hearing. Uh, over the summer, I got, uh, I got new glasses. So I go in to see the eye doctor, and I'm in there, and they put me in this little room. You know the drill. You've done it. And uh, they put this thing up against me, and then they start doing this thing. They go, is this better, or is this better? Is this better, or is this better? Is this better or is this better? And they get, and finally, I couldn't tell them apart. I was just exhausted. And, you know, I'll vote for anything. Just get me out of here. But, but you know, they, they get it to where they're really getting it down, you know? And it's, and it's really been a lot better. I think as Christian men, we've got to be careful as to the lenses through which we view life. Now, I want to say this to you guys. I think in the age in which we're living, I think we need to be spending more time in the Word of God and less time with Fox News or CNN or MSNBC, whatever, whatever the heck you watch. You've got to be careful of what lens you're watching life through because what it does, it affects your view on life. It affects your perspective. It, it, it affects your joy and your peace and your contentment. Paul says, I have learned. I have learned. I have learned. It's a process. 
And you don't learn this stuff overnight. You don't go take a six-week course in summer school and learn contentment. It's one of the last things that is learned in the Christian life because it takes... PhD is a, 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 a contentment is a PhD level course. It really is. Paul's at the end of his life here. I mean, he's he's not a young buck anymore. I have learned to be content. Then he goes on and says this: I know how to live with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. So in good times I can live, in poor times I can live, in any and every circumstance. Watch this. I have learned the secret. The idea here is. Here's the idea. I have learned the mystery of being content. And it is a mystery. Learning to be content is a mystery. Right off the bat, to be content is to be self-sufficient. Not in yourself, in Christ. Everything that you have. Oh, let me back up. You know what you are? You are nothing. Now, I'm just here to build your self-esteem. Are you not? I mean, everything you have, you've been given. Everything. What have you received, 1 Corinthians says, that you have not been given? Deuteronomy 8.18 says, it is he who gives you the power to make wealth. Um, Say, so, yeah, but I've worked hard. Yeah, well, where'd you get the health? Where'd you get the stamina? How do you get by on four hours sleep or six hours, whatever the heck? It was given to you. Yeah, but I've got this aptitude. Where'd you get the aptitude? Everything that you have has been given to you from God. You are nothing by yourself. And see, the scripture, Jesus reminded us in John 15, 5, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Watch this. Apart from me, you can do what? You can do nothing. Nothing that counts, nothing that's of eternal value. And see, yeah, but you say, but guys are doing stuff all the time. Yeah, they are. And the stuff that they're doing, where did it come from? Their abilities, their aptitudes, their, it came from God. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But this contentment stuff is a mystery. I... I, I I, I will tell you what, over the summer, it was a mystery to me. I knew something was wrong. What's wrong? I didn't even know what was wrong. I didn't even know what was wrong. I was mystified. Something's out of whack. Something, what, what is it? Well, and I go down and I see the book. You know what? You know what? I'm not really content. Why am I not content? I'm spending too much time looking around, and I'm looking at the world through the lens of the world instead of the lens of the Word of God. Now, you guys ever read Sherlock Holmes? I, I read him when I was a kid. And uh, they have these different guys over the years that have played Sherlock Holmes. Have you ever watched PBS and they have this guy, Jeremy Brett, starring as Sherlock Holmes? Watch it. The guy was Holmes. I'd never heard of the guy before, but he had Sherlock Holmes down. He had him down. And here's the thing about Sherlock Holmes. The amazing thing about Sherlock Holmes is that Sherlock Holmes, you know, they got all these mysteries in Sherlock Holmes. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle would write all these mysteries. Nobody could figure it out. Nobody could get a clue what the heck is going on. 
See, Sherlock Holmes had the ability to tie together pieces that were seemingly unrelated. And he would solve the mystery. Now, I'd like you to take the sheet that you were handed. And you say, now, Steve, I looked at this sheet earlier, and you're talking about contentment, and you're talking about Philippians 4, and I don't see anything on here that's even remotely related to Philippians 4 or contentment. And I would say to you, you were very astute. <laughs> and you're saying, how are you going to tie this together? I have no clue. It is a great mystery. But actually, they go together. They truly go together. Um, this, this one sheet, and this, we, we should have given credit, and it was my fault that it didn't get done. This is from the uh, New Bible Commentary, put out by Dallas Seminary. So if you see Dr. Toussaint, tell him I'm sorry. Uh, these two charts, the one that says an overview of Old Testament history, now, why would, be, why would we be looking at that? Thomas Fuller wrote these words probably 150 years ago. Thomas Fuller said this. History. Did any of you guys think history was boring when you were in school growing up? I did. That's because the history courses I took in high school were taught by the football coach. The only history he knew was Bear Bryant. You know, and he tells stories and diagram plays. So I didn't, you know, I didn't think much of history. History is fascinating. History is his story. Someone has said that a prophet, that's not right. Someone has said that a historian is a prophet in reverse. If you want to, want, if you want to know what's going to happen in the future, you look to the past. 1 Corinthians 10 says, these things were written for our instruction. What things? The history of Judah and Israel in the Old Testament. So much of the Old Testament is history. I'm just grabbing uh, the Old Testament here. Give me a second. Right there, right there. That's Old Testament history. These things were written for our instructions. There are lessons here for us today. And the reason that those lessons are in here is because there, were, there was a nation chosen by God, the nation of Israel. God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and then 17. And God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And, and, and this is all about, you got the kings of the Old Testament, and you, you had all these kings, and then you had these guys called prophets, and the prophets would show up, and they would speak to the kings, and they would speak to the people. Thomas Fuller said this, History makes a young man to be old, without either wrinkles or gray hairs, privileging him with the experience of age without either the infirmities or inconveniences thereof. Without history, a man's soul is near blind, seeing only the things which almost touch his eyes. If you don't know about history, you're a blind man. The Bible is full of history. So why in the world have I given you this chart when we started off by talking about contentment? Um, we're going to go to Daniel. But I'd like you to note this, this um, the, the side that says an overview of Old Testament history. Now, now why do we want to look at this? What, what, what is the big deal about this? Um, first of all, let me say this to you. 
there is a God who is in charge of all history. I got up this morning very early, and I grabbed the legal pad, and I just started writing. Let me read this to you. Whenever we are born, back up, I can't read my own handwriting. Wherever we are born, and when we are born, is part of God's plan. It sets in motion God's providential plan in our lives. When you are born and where you are born starts into action a thousand, thousand, thousand details that are part of God's perfectly timed providence for your life. There, there, there is nothing random in your life. There, there is no chance, there is no coincidence in your life. When, when we talk about history, can I say that you say, okay, Steve, this is all fine and well. What does history have to do with contentment? There is a God who started history. There is a God who is a creator. Yeah, but you started off by talking about contentment. That's exactly right. And then you said he learned to be content. That's exactly right. And then you said contentment is a great mystery. Yes, it is. So what does that have to do with God and history? If you try to learn to be content by focusing on contentment, you'll never get it. The only way that you can learn to be content in the circumstances in which you find yourself is to step out of yourself and go back to the creator God. Turn with me to Isaiah 46. I want to show you that God has a plan. He has a plan for all of history. Look at verse 9. Isaiah 46, 9. He says, Remember the former things long past. Now watch this. Watch what he says. For I am God, and there is no other, declaring the end. Oh, oh, I skipped skipped the line. For I am God, and there is no other. Uh, Remember on the tape, Daryl Bach was talking about uh, Christianity is exclusive? Yes, it is. And see, if there's anything that the world hates, it's... It's your religion being exclusive. Because, see, we believe there are many ways. There are many paths. No, there aren't. There's one path. It's through Christ. He says, I am God. There is no other. There are counterfeits, but there is no other God. I am God, and there is no one like me. And there isn't. Watch this. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. In other words, God has a plan and God has a purpose for all of history and for your life. And you want to find contentment? You will never find contentment if you don't start with this sovereign, providential God. Go over to Ephesians chapter 1, if you would. Now, you don't need to go there if you, 
have got this contentment stuff wired. Uh, Ephesians 1, Paul just takes off on the greatness of God and the sovereignty of God. We'll pick it up, verse 8, mid-verse mid 8. He's talking about the greatness of God. He says, in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him now this gets a little, you gotta, you got to stay with me. Which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. God's administration is not for four years. God's not thinking about re-election. God's administration rules and reigns forever with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. Watch this. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven and things on the earth. Now, I can keep flying, but I'm stopping there. There's a purpose for history, and Christ is the center of history. He's coming back one day. He's going to make everything right. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? You ever get hacked off? Sure you do. I'm hacked off right now. Why? Because there's so much injustice in the world. There's so much stuff that's wrong. There's so much stuff that shouldn't be done. There are decisions that are made. They're just, this is terrible. This is already. Yeah, that's right. And he's going to make it right. He's going to make it right. So, you want to find contentment? Start with God. Start with this sovereign God. Now, now look at your sheet, this history sheet. Okay? You guys still with me? I thought we'd go light tonight. Just kind of get to know each other and build relationships. Anybody bring a beach ball? We can knock that around maybe as we're teaching here tonight. We're not going to do that. Um, you see this overview of Old Testament history? So here's what happens in Genesis. You've got this guy named Abraham. And God, calls, God initiates and God says, hey, Abraham's just a pagan guy. You got Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. And God says, hey, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And God made a covenant with this guy, Abraham. And then he gave him a son, Isaac. And he, this kid is born when, when uh, he's uh, uh, 100 years old and his wife's 90. And see, oh, here's the interesting thing about Abraham, is that God had promised him a son, but along the line, he's getting older and older, and his wife's getting older and older. And he's thinking, you know, you know I know what God said, but you know, I, you know gosh, I'm going to have to help God out a little. God doesn't need any help. God doesn't need your help. God needs you to be obedient. So at a certain point, he's talking with his wife, and they decide, oh, you know, back then you'd have your handmaiden, and a guy would have intercourse with a handmaiden, and they have the child, you know. And, and so that's what he did. And that's why you've got the whole thing going on in the Middle East today. Because you've got the Jews, and you've got the Arabs. And from that son, who was not the son of promise, Ishmael, come the Arabs. But then if they had awaited. But you see, it, it, the problem is, well, I'm 100 years old. And my wife's 90. Well, we can't wait. I mean, this, this is it's past the time. Let me tell you something. You're never past the time with God because of who he is. So even when, when they're both dead in their own body, the scripture says, God gives them a son. 
So you got Abraham, Isaac, and then you got Jacob. All right, so you guys, you guys get this, all right? Then you got Joseph, and then they go into Egypt, and they're in slavery, and then you got the Red Sea, and all. So this is called history. Um, Moses leads them out. Uh, they're in the Exodus. You see the Exodus and wilderness, wilderness wanderings? You see that. And then while, you, while they've got that going on for 40 years, you've got Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And you've got a chapter in there called Deuteronomy 28. And here's what God says in Deuteronomy 28. To kind of sum it up, God made this covenant, and here's what God says. He says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I'm going to have a relationship with you. And in Deuteronomy 28, he says, I'm going to take you in this land, and it's going to be an unbelievable land. Deuteronomy 28 is about the blessings and the curses. Am I losing you guys? Are you still with me? And God says, here's what I'm going to do. In Deuteronomy 28, he gives an outline of the blessings. I'm going to bless you beyond your wildest dreams if you will follow me and if you will obey me. But if you don't follow me and you don't obey me, then there's a list of curses, and they're twice as long as the blessings. And you know what they did? They didn't obey God, and they didn't follow God. Anyway, that's the whole story of these guys. They refuse to follow God. And then you work your way through, and then you got the period of the judges, and then you've got, uh, finally they say, hey, we want a king. So God gives them a king, a guy by the name of Saul. So you got the first three, king, first three kings of Israel. I've got to slow down. I'm trying to do too much here. you got the first three kings of Israel. First king is Saul. Second king is David. Third king is Solomon. Fourth king is Rehoboam. Rehoboam, what a name. Uh... Rehoboam was Solomon's son. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived on the face of the earth. Can I tell you something about Rehoboam? He's one of the greatest fools on the history of the earth. It took David and Solomon 80 years to put the nation of Israel together in the condition that was in. And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was such a fool that he cut the nation in half in 72 hours. So now, you see here on your bottom sheet, you see the kingdom divided? The kingdom divides. Now... Flip over your sheet. The kingdom divides. The northern kingdom is called Judah. Uh, I take it back. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. So you've got ten tribes in the north. You've got two tribes in the south. Are you guys still with me? The two, the two tribes in the south are Judah and Benjamin. The other ten tribes are in the north. The first king of the guys in the north is not Rehoboam. It's Jeroboam. They had this Om thing going up there. I don't know what it was. So you got Rehoboam and you got Jeroboam. Jeroboam is up in the north, and he starts out following God, but then he's concerned that the people won't follow him. He's afraid they'll go down to Jerusalem, and they'll worship the true God, and they'll get influenced by Rehoboam. So he says on his own, oh, you don't have to go down there and follow the word of God. We'll just do worship up here. And then he started building these things called golden calves, which they hadn't had in quite a while. And Jeroboam became an idolater. Do you see all the kings that followed Jeroboam for 200 years? Every one of those kings was an idolater, contrary to God, and in rebellion to God. And so what God would do is, God would send prophets. You'll see, uh, you'll see in brackets, Elijah, who was there during Ahab and Ahaziah and Jehoram. You see Elisha, you see Hosea, you see Jonah, you see Amos. So for 200 years, God's sending prophets and saying, you need to follow me, you need to follow me, and they won't do it. Do you see the long-suffering? you see the mercy of God? Yes. All right, now watch this. 
Suddenly down there, you see that, you see that last king, the ninth dynasty, 732 to 722? Then what happens? They're done. They're history. You know what happens? God sends the nation of Assyria in, and Assyria takes them into captivity. And they are never heard from again, these ten tribes. You ever heard of the ten lost tribes of Israel? That's what happened. They were taken into captivity, and they disappeared. And they were warned for 200 years. Okay, now what's going on with Judah, with the other kingdom? What's going on with the other kingdom is that every once in a while, most of the kings are bad, but every once in a while, you'll get a good king who will actually turn the people back to God and they'll obey God and they'll listen to God. So they last a longer time. Now, you get down there, you see, get one, two, three, four, five from the bottom. You see this guy named Josiah? Josiah was the greatest of all the kings, greater even than David, the Bible says. Josiah was a man who had a heart for God. He brought reform. He, re he brought revival to the nation. He turned things around. Now, now watch this. Daniel was born during the time of Josiah. But when Josiah died, things went south in a hurry. Have you guys got a Bible? Turn with me to Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. And once again, you may be saying, this is very interesting, Steve, but um, what does this have to do with contentment? What does this have to do with where I am in life and what's going on in my life? Well, I'll show you in just a minute. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year, and keep, your, uh, keep that chart handy, okay? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Okay. Guess who lived in Jerusalem at this time? Daniel. And his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay? So it nails it. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And you can see Jehoiakim... On your chart, one of the sons of Josiah after Josiah died. Verse 2, the Lord gave Jeho Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. So now, Judah is in exile. Judah has just been taken over by the nation of Babylon. You say, well, wait a minute, uh, Babylon came in and got him? What about Assyria? Well, Assyria used to be the great nation. See, that was up back here. Assyria came in and got the northern kingdom. But, but see, uh, nations rise and nations what? Fall. Assyria went in decline. Guess who took over Assyria? Babylon, also known as the Chaldeans. So, and we'll get more into this next week. But there are going to be three different deals where Babylon comes in over a period of years but in one of these deals, probably the first time, Daniel and his buddies wind up going to Babylon. And you know how long he's going to be there? He's going to be there for 70 years. Oh, and at the end of 70 years, you know what's going to happen? You know what God said in the book of Isaiah? He said, I'm going to raise up a king of the Persians by the name of Cyrus, and he is going to return my people to Jerusalem and help them rebuild. Oh, by the way, God said that. 150 years before Cyrus was born. Because God oversees history and God oversees nations and God is sovereign. God has a plan 
for the ages. Now let's just stop right here for a minute. We started off by talking about contentment. Do you know how you get content? Do you know how you learn to be content? Do you know how, you, how this mystery of contentment is, I have learned the mystery. I have learned the secret. All right, how do you learn? You start with the greatness of God and the sovereignty of God. And where I am in life today and what I see happening, my gosh, economically what I see happening. Could, could, could liberty be lost? Could freedom be lost? Could, could I lose this country? Can I tell you something? Daniel lost his country. Daniel lost his freedom. And Daniel lost his liberty. And God was still sovereign in his life and it was part of God's almighty plan. Now, am I saying that's what's going to happen? I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just saying you've got to look at your life and I've got to look at my life through the lens of the Word of God. Is this better? Or is this better? Is this better or is this better? Can I tell you what's better? This is better. Because when I look at my life and what's going on that seemingly is out of my control, and I see people in high places doing this and this, and oh my gosh, this, and I mean... You ever see people in high places and you think, what the heck's going on and it's out of control? They got all the power, I don't have any power. They, you know, these high places, these high people... They're high, but he is most high. He is the most high God. Here's what I want to drive home to you guys. When, when we study Daniel's life, I don't see a guy. Now, here, here's what I do see. I see a guy that lost his nation. I see a guy that, that lost his um, freedoms, and I see a guy that lost his liberty. But as you read his life, I see a guy, and the hand of God is all over his life. And he's got three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And guess what? The hand of God is all over these guys. Did they want to lose their nation? No, but they did. Well, gee, who brought that about? Ultimately, God did. You say, I don't think God did. We'll turn over to Daniel chapter 2. Look at verse 20. After God gave Daniel an answer and interpretation of a dream, which we'll get into later, Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. How much wisdom does God have? God has all wisdom. You say, well, you know, I'm looking around, what's going on? I don't like what's going on. Well, he didn't ask you, and he doesn't care what you think. Right? You ever get upset? I get, what was part of my problem this, this summer? I would, hey, guys, can I tell you something? And I learned this from my dad. And I was doing this, and I got to keep doing it. My dad, who passed away earlier this year at 85, my dad, every morning, got up, got his coffee, and began with the Word of God. The older I get, the more I realize how important this is. You talk about the self-watch, watching my heart, watching myself. I've got to get up in the morning, and I've got to recalibrate myself with the truth of God. Because as much as I fight it off, I find myself looking through different lenses and I get, I, I kind of get baffled, I kind of get upset, I get a little bit perturbed. I get, and in the morning, I got to get that coffee, I got to get in the Bible. And I got to get recalibrated. I got to put ballast in my boat. Does this make sense? Daniel 2. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. How much wisdom does God have? He has all wisdom. How much power does God have? He has all power. Some people have wisdom. 
great wisdom, but they don't have the power to implement their wisdom. That's not true of God. God's power ensures that his wisdom is put into place, and God has a plan for the nations. It is he who changes the times and the epics. It is he who changes the times and the seasons. Well, you know, it seems to me things are changing. Oh, you're right. Well, 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 who's behind it? He is. God is changing history. It's going according. We are right on schedule. If we're right on schedule, why am I upset? If we're on schedule, why am I fretting? If we're on schedule, why am I anxious? Why am I worried? Am I making any sense? Now, now look at when stuff happens in nations, and bad stuff happened in the nation because the nation of Judah and Israel, they didn't obey God. But God always has a group of people in these nations. And they're in a minority. God always has a group of people that love him and serve him and follow him and trust in him. You know what they're called? They're called Baptists. <laughs> That's not what they're called. They're called the remnant, the remnant. They love him with all their heart, all their soul, all their strength. They love him and they trust in him alone. He's their hope, he's their rock, he's their salvation. They look to him, he's their father. And you know what God does for those people? God takes care of those people. So you got Daniel, you got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God took care of them, even when, the even when the times change. Look at verse 21. God removes kings, God establishes kings. Huh. Maybe not the way you want him to do it. But see, he's in charge. Ultimately, he's in control. Um, go back to uh, Daniel 1, verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and some of the nobles. In some way, shape, or form, Daniel was part of the royal family. We don't know how. We don't know what the connection was. We don't know what the bloodline was. But he was part, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of this elite group. And we'll get into more, more into that next week. But, but uh, when you put the ages together and, you know, you put the whole book together, Daniel was probably somewhere at this point... He's somewhere around 15, 16, 17 years old. He's just a kid. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're just kids. And, and, and what happened to him? He suffered great loss. You know why men go into depression? Men go into depression because of one of two reasons. People go into depression for one of two reasons. Number one, for physiological reasons. There can be a chemical imbalance. A doctor could tell you about that. I'm not a doctor. There can be a chemical imbalance. There can be, you know, with guys, testosterone stuff. You know, they'll check your testosterone. I mean, I go in every day and get a shot just for kicks. <laughs> That's a joke. Um, they have testosterone stuff, you know. Or wives go through hormone stuff, right? Right? And, and sometimes the hormones are low or something's out of whack. You go into the depression. All right, that's one reason. Here's the other reason people go into depression. Here's the other reason men go into depression. Loss. Great loss. You lose something valuable. You lose something important. 
But what did Paul say? I have learned to live in humble means. I have learned to live with loss, and I have, I have learned to live in prosperity. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, this, this is work of the soul. This is soul work. This is, this is watching over our souls. And, and gosh, Lou's giving me these time signals. Okay, we're going to spend some time in this, but I want to give you three shots. We've set all this up here tonight. I want to give you three shots from Burroughs, Jeremiah Burroughs, to finish up, okay? And then we'll walk out on this. But once again, contentment begins with sovereignty, providence, greatness of God. God's got a plan for history. Where you are in history, when Daniel was born, where Daniel was born was part of God's plan. Where you were born, when you're born, the number of your days, it's part of God's plan. Three principles that will help you with contentment from Jeremiah Burroughs, all right? Here's number one. God's ordinary course is that his people in this world should be in an afflicted condition. I'll say it again. God's ordinary course, not unusual course, God's ordinary course is that his people in this world should be in an afflicted condition. Now, how else can I depress you? But can I tell you something? That's right out of the word of God. Jesus said, in the world you'll have trouble. Acts 14, 22. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Not some tribulations, not a few tribulations, through many. That's why you've got many. You're in the kingdom of God on your way to the kingdom of God. It's the normal Christian life to be in a state of affliction. Philippians 1. And see, no, we think, oh, no, that's not right. You've been watching too much Christian television. You've been watching those bozos. There are good guys in Christian television, there are bad guys. How do you tell the difference? I always start with the hair. <laughs> weird hair equals weird doctrine. They spray that stuff, it gets into their brain, screws up their discernment. They can't understand the Word of God. They're, hey, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. They're heretics. Oh, that, was, that wasn't meant to be funny. But I'm writing that down. That's pretty good. <laughs> Write that down for me, Scott. Give it to me later, will you? No, they are. They're, no joke intended. They're heretics. Philippians 1.29. It has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ. How many of you guys believe in Christ as your Savior? You're following. It has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. Oh, no, in the original Greek it says prosper for his sake. No, it doesn't. You're screwed up with hairspray. It has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. Guys, there's a place called heaven. This isn't it. 
the normal Christian life is that you suffer. You ever work out? You ever take your buddy down to the gym? Say, hey, you want to go down to the gym and suffer? <laughs> you don't say that, but that's what you mean. When you go down to the gym, what are you going to do? You're going to suffer. Oh, just go. Come on, you can do it. Just one more rep. Hey, hey, you and you know, the bone comes out of your shoulder. It's great. Busts through the skin. Oh, good job. Way to go. <laughs> it's there on every wall of every gym in America. No pain, no what? God's ordinary course is that his people in this world should be in an afflicted condition. It's how God built spiritual muscle. Daniel had muscle. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had muscle. All right, here's number two. Oh, by the way, I'll give you one other verse under that. 1 Peter 4, 12. It says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes among you as though some strange thing were happening to you. The normal Christian life, you know what's unusual in the Christian life? Things are going well and smooth and you got no problems. Enjoy it. Are you there? Enjoy it. It won't last long. Here's number two, and I'm out of time, but I really don't care. Here's number two. Usually when God intends the greatest mercy to any of his people, he first brings them into the lowest condition. Let me say that again. Usually when God intends the greatest mercy to any of his people, he first brings them into the lowest condition. Now listen to what this guy says. God seems to go across and work in a contrary way in our lives. When he intends the greatest mercies to his people, he first usually brings them into very low conditions. If it is a bodily mercy, an outward mercy that he intends to bestow, he brings them physically low and outward low first. If it is a mercy in their positions that he intends, in their possessions that he intends to bestow, he brings them low in that and then raises them. And in their reputation, he brings them low there and then raises them. I, I have a friend that oversees this ministry and this camping ministry, and he's being attacked right now, and terrible things are being said about him because of someone that worked on his staff who was completely out of God's will. As soon as they knew about it, they dealt with, but who's being attacked? And whose reputation is under fire? His. And I'm telling you something, God's going to raise him up. But first he's low. But God will take care of the reputation. Number three. It is the way of God to work by contraries. We don't talk like this. This was 300 years ago. It is the way of God to work by contraries to turn the greatest evil into the greatest good. Listen to this. To grant great good after great evil is one thing. And to turn great evil into the greatest good is another. And yet that is God's way. The greatest good that God intends for his people, he many times works out of the greatest evil. The greatest light is brought out of the greatest darkness. Okay, I'm done, except for one story. So this summer, I'm reading this book called An Ancient Christian Scottish Heritage. Just light bedtime reading. Why am I reading this book? Well, there was a book that came out a few years ago called How the Scots Invented the Modern World. Big-time book, best-selling book. It talks about this little nation of Scotland. It talks about all the great minds, all the great inventors that came out of Scotland, and it is a phenomenal thing. 
what the people of Scotland, what, how they changed the modern world. And they really did it. There's just one problem with the book. The guy completely ignored the factor, the key factor that made the people of Scotland so significant in the ministry, uh, uh, in furthering uh, good across the world. And you know what it was? He completely ignored, except for maybe one sentence, the ministry of John Knox, who was the man of God who brought the Reformation to Scotland. It was said of Scotland under the ministry of Knox that at 7 o'clock in the morning, six days a week, you could knock on the door of any house, you would find a family having breakfast and the father of the family reading the word of God to them. This guy, you know, how the Scots have been in the modern world. Not a word about Christianity. You know what's interesting about this book? After Knox's ministry, there was great persecution. This new king comes on the scene. King James VI. There's a preacher by the name of Robert Bruce. Not the King Robert the Bruce. That was the 1300s. This preacher is a phenomenal preacher. He's preaching in Edinburgh. And this king decides he doesn't like this great preacher. Because people are coming to Christ. They're being converted. Lives are being changed. So you know what he does? He doesn't want this preacher. So he sends him way up into the Scottish Highlands into this obscure little town. Nobody can get to him, nobody can hear him, and the guy's up there for 40 years. There are two streets in this town. Now, up in the Scottish Highlands, there are these guys called Highlanders, the clams. They were barbaric men. They lived like, they were scum. Uh, the, the, the Campbells were meeting in a meeting house for a church service, the women and children, the McDonald's came and burned them alive in the church. And then they would go back and forth, back and forth. You know what happened as the years went by? These different clans would come down out of the hills to hear this guy preach. And they'd find Christ. Fathers would come to Christ. They'd tell their children about Christ. And you know what happened over 40 years? You know what happened? Oh, this guy never did get back to preach in the big city. He's up there in the highlands. But you know what happened? These warring tribes that had been warring for hundreds of years, you know what happened? They came to know Christ. Because the greatest preacher was sent into nowhere. And all the Christians go, oh, this is terrible. This is the worst thing that could have happened, really. But see, we tend to look at everything this year, next year, three years from now. God's looking 100 years, 200 years. By the way, then you get into the next century, and you get the British Empire going all over the world. Some of the greatest soldiers, some of the greatest administrators in the British Army were out of the Scottish, guess where? Highlands. Men who were committed to Christ Yes, they were serving the queen, but they were serving the king of kings. And wherever they went, they took the gospel and established churches. And it goes on from there. Can I tell you something, guys? God works strangely. But he works. So as I sit here today, you know what? I look at this, and I look at this, and I look at this. And i got to look through the lens of the word of God. And I don't have to be discouraged. And I don't have to be fearful. And I don't have to be worried. Because he rules. And he reigns. And he governs. And he's running the show. That's the truth. So we bow before you, Father, and thank you for your greatness. This is a mystery to us, Lord. It's a mystery. But would you help us to put on the lens of your word? Would you help us tomorrow morning to grab that coffee and recalibrate in your word and put it in our hearts? Get us centered. Get us focused. 
before we go out to do the work that you've called us to do. Calm us down, settle us in your providence and in your sovereignty and that you are the God who governs all things, including our lives. We can trust you. Encourage us with these words we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.